I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Hoy, and with me as always is that hill giantist of hill giantists, <laughs> Jeff Goad. <laughs> <laughs> and this week we are very honored to have special guest Brian Murphy, author of Flame and Crimson, a I would dare say close to definitive history of sword and sorcery, or at least as close as we're going to get in this day. So, in this day and age, <laughs> hello, thanks, boy, thanks for Jeff, thanks for having me on. Love the program, and I, am I the first to say that I'm on the any any nominated Appendix N Book Club podcast? You are. <laughs> the news. All right. right. So everybody, vote early, vote often. I voted eight times. <laughs> I do hate to break it to you. By the time this episode actually drops, voting will be closed. All right. Uh, okay. Well, well, well we you are the that. first person to be on the show since we've been nominated. All right. There we go. Literally, our last guest, I think, was a couple hours before we found out we were nominated. So that was <laughs> exactly. <pretty exciting>. so. <laughs> Congratulations. It's well deserved. Love the program. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, thank Brian, you. so Brian, tell us a little bit about your sort of history with. Um, D and D, and then what we now know as Appendix N, in whichever order you prefer. Yeah. So, um, wow, with D and D, I so I'm uh, I just turned 47, so I might be a little older than you guys. Uh, I started playing D and D in the very early 80s, somewhere around I think it was 82. I have to mm-hmm. track that down. I my my first purchase was the Tom Moldvay edited um, Basic Dungeons and Dragons box set. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I believe it was actually not my first purchase. My mother purchased it for me. I begged mm-hmm. her. It was in a it was in a uh, hobby shop at the Woburn Mall, Woburn, Massachusetts. I'm yep. a Massachusetts native. I got to say Woburn. Yeah, Woburn. That's right. That's a proper Massachusetts pronunciation. Right. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I picked that up and, and just fell in love with it. At the time, D&D was a thing. You know, there was still some of the the hysteria, uh, the, the religious hysteria going on around it. I think they had a little more added appeal. My parents didn't know about it at the time, but I uh, love the game. And, and frankly, I, I don't want to step on anyone's toes or offend anyone. I, I happen to think that Tom Moldvay box set is still probably the easiest game the av- version to access and get into. It's a mm-hmm. wonderful presentation. The rules are super clear and easy to use. They're deadly as hell. You know, you have yep, the, yep. the one hit die, and if, you, and if you roll a one or a two in your hit points, well, I think we used to allow our one re-roll. On hey, you're actually allowed to re-roll the one, <laughs> ones and twos for your That's first right. level. But after that, it's, it's all, it's all uh, on you. Yeah. Well, uh, Old School Essentials, which is now the sort of clean up version of that is probably the most popular old school game at the moment and so mm-hmm. i think the the bx has strong legs and i agree with you brian bx the the moldy basic and the cook expert editions are hands down my favorite version of official dungeons and dragons oh nice all right yeah i i, I know it was moldy cook who cook did the expert version of, uh what that that moldy basic is still great and and uh, also i think it's got a great recommended reading list I think you know, I know you guys have alluded mm-hmm. to it on prior shows, but it, it builds on what's in Appendix N, probably a little more thorough, I think, and a little more representative of all the right. uh, influences. Right. I kind of remember right? the um, it was the was a woman who helped compile it, who was a librarian, and I think that was really helped. It made it a little bit, as you say, a little bit broader spectrum 
Yep. Um, and a little bit more possibly age appropriate for people. I guess, again, we would have been like 10, 11, 12 when we're picking up the game um, for people yep. picking up an expert's uh, basic set. So, And we definitely drew on that list quite a bit while figuring out which titles outside of the Appendix N we are going to cover on this specific program. Right. Yeah, excellent. And um, yeah, so I so I picked up that box set. But the first game I ever played was um, so my I have a brother who's three years older, and his friend was a dungeon master, and he ran us through uh, Village of Hamlet. So we were using I think cool. a, amalgamation of AD and D rules as well as the basic rules. And I didn't quite know all the differences then. And I think it was. Right. Close to a TPK, I, 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 we we did some stuff in the village of Hamlet you weren't supposed to do. We were vandals. We got abducted. <laughs> we, we we got uh, you know taken in by the local authorities, and it wasn't pretty, but it was a hell of a lot of fun. And that that started me on a a, a lifelong love and journey through Dungeons right. and Dragons. Right. Were you a big reader at that point already in terms of fantasy fiction, or is that something that came uh, roughly the same time? You know. I was a reader of fantasy fiction. Um, I was not, I, I, at the time, you know, um, gosh, Dragonlance and, uh, of course, Tolkien and a lot of the more, the epic fantasy was in, was in style at the time. And that's what I was reading. Um, actually one of the things I read most, of course, were the rule books. I, mm-hmm. uh, I believe that Dungeons and Dragons more so than the at the table game experience, um, the the fact that it made a whole generation of readers you had to read these rule books to figure out how to play the game mm-hmm. you had to wade through the tome that was the dungeon master's guide and and figure out all the high gaxian words and and uh, <laughs> and his style uh, and his extensive vocabulary i so a lot of my reading actually at back then was the D rule books fell in love with mm-hmm. it puzzled through those and started to read some of the literature that was of course referenced in appendix n and elsewhere okay and when did you become aware of Appendix N as a concept? Is that a little later on, or was it just, you know, some people have discovered very recently, even though they'd read all the books, and they said, oh, there's a thing that sort of ties these things all together for us, you know? Yeah, I think it was right around the same time. You know, I was, at, I, I didn't always have a gaming group, so I would kind of read the books and either imagine myself playing or maybe do some solo ridiculous uh, <laughs> excursions with the, with the D&D rules, and of course, I found like you know the the, the wandering harlot tables would roll on those. Saucy wench. Yeah, but sloppy troll. Yeah, I love those. It's really amazing how how simultaneously because this is all pre-internet, how simultaneously everyone talks about being so isolated, but how everyone seems to have had the same experience anyway in many ways. Exactly. You know, it's, it's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. It really is pretty universal. Yeah. Now, Brian, how did we get from that kid who was excited about D&D to the grown man who is, who's writing a nonfiction book about sword and sorcery? Wow. That's a, yeah, it's a big leap. But, um, so I, I had been playing D and D and I, uh, I'm recently semi-retired from the game. I haven't played in a while, although I did just get roped back into a game of fifth edition. Um, but essentially, you know, I, through through Appendix N, and as we mentioned, through the Moldvay recommended reading list, um, I started becoming more familiar with those titles, branched out, realized that uh, Sword and Sorcery and those type of titles, um, you know, the the pulp inspired uh, fiction of the day was 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 the stuff that I fell in love with. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the the high fantasy I have 
I, I still enjoy some of that, but I got a little disenchanted with the three and five and seven plus book series. Uh, fell in love with the at twelve hundred pages of book. <laughs> twelve hundred pages of book. I know. Fell in love with the shorter stuff, of course. Robert E. Howard. Um, I was lucky enough. There was a local bookstore in my hometown of Reading, Massachusetts, a used bookstore. I, you know, I, I consider that, that 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 was a privilege I had, where I could walk literally from my home up to the downtown, about a mile walk, and a wonderful old used bookstore that had a lot of these old old titles. You know, it had a lot of. Um, it, I had the entire collection of the REH um, Lancer books, the 12, mm-hmm. 12 book Conan saga was able to buy all those secondhand about 50 cents a title, fell in love with those, read them voraciously branched out into other things. Faffer the gray mouser, um, gosh, Jack Vance on and on. And, you know, at one point, Jeff, I guess I realized that there really, for, for whatever reason, no one had, told a comprehensive history of, of sword and sorcery, what it was, what comprises the genre, uh, what the, what the classic, um, canon of works are, you know, there was a lot of scattered introductions. You read like flashing swords, um, um, and you read some of the anthologies. They, they have like these lightly sketched introductions of what sword and sorcery is, but it wasn't satisfying enough for me. I knew this was something different than high fantasy, I knew it had different roots. Um, it was striving to do something different in the literature. Uh, but short of something like Imaginary Worlds, you know, Lynn Carter's foray into the history of fantasy, which has a chapter or two on, of, on sword and sorcery. Um, and there was a little bit in um, L. Sprague de Camp's uh, Literary Swordsmen and Sorcerers, but nothing comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And instead of waiting for someone to to write uh, a history of sword and sorcery, I figured, why not do it myself? <laughs> nice. I've, 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 I've been a writer for most of my life. I was a uh, I wrote for a newspaper. I was a sports editor. That was my major in college. So I've had a lot of experience writing nothing at length. And uh, this was a a, a, a daring uh, venture and voyage for me to write my first book. Right. Very well, cool. I just, I, I just started, and you find it quite readable. So that I'm glad with that. It's 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 you know well well sorted, well uh, well cited, but quite readable. I, my favorite little bit so far that I've read is the the discussion about whether sword and sorcery is a harmful or help helpful label. And then your third point is why not engaging in pedantry is fun, and which is the whole goal of this podcast. <laughs> so. Now, I've got a question for you, Brian. So a lot of people are coming into the appendix, I'm sorry, coming into Sword and Sorcery through the Appendix N. In your opinion, do you think the Appendix N is a good introductory list to the Sword and Sorcery genre? Absolutely. I think it's diverse. There's a lot of great titles on there. Uh, not quite as comprehensive as, as I would like. Yeah, you know, some of the some of the titles are alluded to. Um, but if you if you pick up, you know, Liber and you pick up Howard, uh, and you pick up Vance and um, a handful of other of, of the recommended authors, I think you've got a pretty good introduction to sword and sorcery and a great starting point for, for my favorite genre. So let's say somebody does start getting into the Appendix N and then discovers that of the Appendix N, the stuff that excites them the most is sword and sorcery. What authors would you suggest people go to next? Um, that that are off the, the, the list or just are on the list and maybe they, they would want to read more about? I would say omissions from the list. 
Okay. Well, you're gonna you're gonna put me up for a quiz now because I don't have the actually the appendix and the list directly oh. in front of me. <laughs> Which fair, I, fair. That, that, that's totally fine. I should have come prepared with, but I, I well, I I believe Moorcock is on there. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. really the the quintessential sword and sorcery authors that I would say that are a must read if you really want to understand it are of course Robert E. Howard, uh, mm-hmm. Fritz Leiber. You've got Michael Moorcock. Um, the Jack Vance stories I would put right up there. Uh, actually, one, one of the I'm, I'm not sure if he's on the list, but Paul Anderson, who I know is going to be in the volume we're talking about today, mm-hmm. in the Swords mm-hmm. Against Darkness, um, is a must read. Uh, I'm not sure actually if Carl Edward Wagner is on a, is on the appendix. He end. is not. He is not, and Clark Ashton Smith is not. Okay, so there are two right and, there. I mean, Clark Ashton Smith, a, a really important early. Sword and sorcery. He he's not really a pure sword and sorcery writer. I consider him more of a weird fiction, horror, dark fantasy type of a writer. But mm-hmm. has a handful of really important sword and sorcery stories. And Carl Edward Wagner's Kane, I think, uh, is is an amazing creation. And if you can mm-hmm. find the expensive secondhand <laughs> titles or the ones that were reissued by Centipede right. Press, which are a fortune. It's a, it's a shame that we right, don't have right. Carl Edward Wagner in, in print right now, but I, I would recommend also right. seeking him out. Right. His estate is like a total mess, apparently, so that's why we don't see any of his stuff. Exactly. Just, uh, okay. Yeah. Are there like any great kind of second-tier sword and sorcery authors that you particularly really enjoy? Maybe they're not even great. You just have, you just have fun reading them. Right. Well, you know, I really do enjoy the the – sort of the pastiche, the derivative writers, and I know some of them are on Appendix N, but, you know, we, we look at um, Kothar. Gardner Fox. So much yeah. fun, you know, and I, right. I, 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 I do believe he was having some fun with the genre and writing those a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I mean, the introduction right. to the first Kothar book is pretty pretty much him you know ha- having a little <laughs> play at it. But right. So any of the Kothar stuff, I actually like a lot of, you know, the... Um, Lynn, Lynn Carter's fiction, his Thongor stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got your John Jakes Brack series. Um, guil- mm-hmm. Guilty pleasures, but a lot of right, fun. Right. If if you don't enjoy those, you probably won't enjoy Sword and Sorcery because, I mean, I'll admit, uh, just like with anything, you know, what what's the old rule? 90% of everything is crap. And that's right, probably right. the yeah. truth with sword and sorcery. You know, a lot of it is just pure entertainment and lightweight yeah. entertainment and escapism, and that's fine. So yep. start with the good stuff, but don't be afraid to branch out into right. the, the derivative. Right. <laughs> that brings us to uh, this week's book, which is both sort of actually not technically on the list, which is uh, Swords Against Darkness. Right. It's actually only the third, the third volume is on Appendix N, right, Jeff? And That's not, correct. Only Swords Against Darkness Volume Three is officially on the list right. for some and reason. Andrew but I'm Offit, like, if they've got Volume Three on there, let's just go right. ahead and do the whole series, right. which is and very. Andrew Offit is cited, yeah. uh, but only for the Swords and Swords Against Darkness. So he's only cited as an editor and not as an author, even though he had a lot of his own work. So it's interesting to see whether um, you know how Offit will fit into the appendix. End. And I have read a couple of his co-authored books later on, so he's, he's yep. an interesting cat in his own way. So uh, just to uh, talk about which editions we were looking, I'm working with the 1990 reprint, uh, but it's the same cover and the same text. So Oh, I didn't know they did a reprint. Yeah, um, I've they got didn't the, reprint the later ones, but just the first one. Yeah. Okay, I've got the original 1977 with the Frazetta cover. Yeah. It's like the back of some kind of demon beast with a tail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have the yeah. same uh, 1977 first printing edition. Um, right. 
of course. And this is available in ebook at the moment, but not the later four volumes. Yeah. So. I think every other book back then had a Frazetta cover. This is not one of my favorite Frazetta <laughs> paintings. <laughs> I right. like it. It's it's dynamic as is typical with with Frazetta, but um, not not one of my favorite Frazetta paintings. But that's like you know saying it. You know, which is right. your least favorite child? I mean, they're 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 <laughs> <laughs> any work by Frazetta is 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 amazing. This is no different, and yeah. and of course it has the the uh, obligatory heroic fantasy and the tradition of Robert E. Howard. I think just about every book back then was drawing on <laughs> Robert E. Howard to try to increase their sales. I mean, Zebra exactly. was a famous publisher that published a lot of Robert E. Howard a little bit off the beaten path, and there's a nice list inside my book. Sowers of the Thunder, Tigers of the Sea, Worms of the Earth. I have several of these titles right. over on my a lot bookshelf. Of his historical, his historical yes. fiction. With yeah, I love that it's heroic fantasy in the tradition of Robert E. Howard, but the whole in the tradition of is small <laughs> and a very light font. And then Robert E. Howard is a giant print. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Bigger than Offit's yeah, name being cited there. I know. But, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Nothing in marketing is uh, accidental either. They're, they're, yeah, they were definitely trying to get a few extra sales. So you're, you're thinking you're buying Robert you E. Howard. <laughs> you 100%. And you're getting a little Robert E. Howard in this book. That's true. So before we dive into the library, let's take a look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Drow. Drow. Our word of the day today is drow. And drow is featured quite a few times in the Paul Anderson story. It's on pages 72, 74, 76, twice on 77 and on 78. Mm-hmm. So I'll grab one of them. The drow did not move fast is on page 77. Then later on 77, it says, the drow reached him. On 76, the drow strained to break loose and could not, but neither could Hawk bring him down. So drow, traditionally, the uh, word itself means either a cold mist or a drizzle or a momentary illness. It's also a variant of the word trow, which is kind of like a member of troll-like creatures from Scandinavia. So that is our Hygaxian word of the day. Drow. Interesting. There you go. Not used in the D and D sense. No, uh, it's more like a white, white, or a, yeah. a zombie in this case. Very different exactly. from the dark elves. Yep. <laughs> and and the word white is also a great example of that, and also the word lich, because white really just meant like a like a person, right? And lich just meant a corpse. Mm-hmm. And drow is a word that also has another meaning. Uh, yet in D and D, we ended up codifying them into having a very very specific meaning. Right. Yeah, those are right. interesting. They're both used interchangeably to describe. Um, I'll butcher his name. I'm sure, Gay Rolf, Garolf. Yeah, uh, right. But but very 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 so different than than we're used to in D and D. You know, it's totally. Not, it's not a double scimitar wielding dark elf. It's something right, right. <laughs> almost invulnerable corpse. Actually, I draw. Right. <laughs> so we can go ahead and move this conversation over to the library. Overall, Brian, what did you think of this collection of stories? Well. I absolutely loved it. Uh, wonderful collection of stories, um, quintessential sword and sorcery. Really, actually, this is this is a great place to start if you want to know what sword and sorcery is all about. You've got you've got some of the it's classic he- second tier heroes, I guess you would call them. You know, you have Cardios of Atlantis by Manly Weld, uh, Manly Wade Wellman. You've got Simon of Gitta. Uh, you've got Ryer from Ramsey Campbell, who is a noted horror author who did uh, branch out into sword and sorcery. Um, you've got Vettius, the uh, Roman legionnaire uh, officer from David Drake. 
So really great collection of sword and sorcery and, and more and more of the a little bit of the later period for sword and sorcery classic. You know, it was really at its height around here in the 70s, 77 when this was out. Um, some of the stories show it sort of some awareness of the genre overall. You've got a couple stories that are clearly in homage or even refer to, uh, you know, the Ring of Set, for example, which is taken mm-hmm. from a uh, Robert E. Howard story, the, right. the Phoenix right. of the Sword. Right. Yep. Referring to Fafaman in there. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And you've got, um, oh gosh, the, um, what's the, the third story here? The um, Smile of Oisio. Yeah, yeah, which is definitely got some Fafford and the Grey Mouser. Uh, the the dual heroes in here, and you've got um, mm-hmm. a, a raid on a tower, which is a little bit Tower of the Elephant. I, you you can clearly see that these are second generation sword and sorcery writers building on these earlier foundational works. But it's mm-hmm. it's super entertaining, you know. As as again, I know you guys refer to this a lot on your podcast. Some of the some of the stories are a little dated in terms of their depiction of, of women and there, there are some elements in there that a, a modern reader would have to deal with coming to the story uh, fresh, but uh, yeah. I really loved it. And I, I thought it was uh, super entertaining and, and very, very representational of what sword and sorcery is all about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Andrew Offit also has a introduction to the whole collection and introduces each story. Did you get a chance to read those? Yeah, absolutely. He he gives you a little bit of inside baseball in terms of how the stories were accepted. <laughs> yeah. uh, he knows some of the authors then and and uh, ha- has a few jabs at them, but, um, you know, and was deferential to like Manly Wade Wellman, who, of course, was, you know, had, had been around for a long time by then. And uh, it, it gives you some insight into what I think the publishing atmosphere was like at Zebra and for Sword and Sorcery in general at the time. Um, you know, again, it was it was a strong market. And um, it was it was great to see that I, I thought the introductions really added a, a nice flavor to the in, to the volume itself. He, of course, he also talks about sword and sorcery as a genre. Um, and I have to I'll allude to the second volume where he actually uh, spends some time talking about sword and sorcery as the name of this particular type of, of fantasy. You know, he uses it's more, he, he refers to it with a more broad heroic fantasy, which I think works, mm-hmm. particularly for, you know, heroic fantasy, sword and sorcery. We're kind of splitting hairs there on those terms. They're, they're almost synonymous, um, but it is nice to see him kind of deal with that and, and talk about, and as I, as I also mentioned in Flame and Crimson, how, you know, th- that's, if, if you're really into this type of thing, it's, um, it's a, it becomes important, but from an outsider's view, probably not so much. We're kind of splitting hairs here, but it definitely uh, it's a nice inside baseball look at what's going on with some of these authors and mm-hmm. and and the genre as a whole at the time. Right. I get the sense that although I think we found we had a uh, previous um, pre-show discussion group with some of our patrons, and I think mm-hmm. some people found the introductions a little bit jokey or a little bit yeah. Uh, but I do get the sense through that, though, that this is very much a curated collection. This wasn't just stuff that came over the transom, right? This is, this exactly. is Andrew Offit picked these stories specifically. I want these stories to be in this book. I went and asked these authors or, you know, to submit something specific. And this is what I want in this book as the representational launching this series. And 
And credit where credit's due, although it is sometimes a little awkward in his presentation, he does a really great job of making sure the reader knows that he tried to get female voices uh, to submit to the to the collection. And he also went out of his way to make sure that we knew that the author of one of the stories was Puerto Rican. So it's like you, you get a little bit of like for the 1970s, it's very surprising to see somebody who is not only being very careful about being inclusive in his selections, but is also being very vocal about his efforts, which is I thought I thought was pretty cool. So, Brian, I'm also curious, in general, were there any specific highlights in this collection for you? Was there, like, a story or two that, like, stood out as, like, a real favorite? Oh, gosh. Well, the tale of tale of Hauk, Hoke, um, I'm going to butcher the name probably. And that's one thing about coming on a podcast that um, is a little different than the written word. I've, I've read these words many times, written about them, but never actually said them aloud. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a big believer that a lot of this stuff, unless we specifically know what the author says it is, like whatever, it's whatever you want it to be. Yeah, we'll make it up. That that was a favorite of mine. You know, I I love Paul Anderson. Uh, If if you haven't read his Broken Sword, which is a a seminal work of sword and sorcery, um, that's another great place to start to learn more about the genre. But this just felt like it was sort of the the language of saga. You know, we had these short, clipped understated sentences uh you had this um really strong probably how in dnd terms probably had 1800 strength you know he was a real <laughs> you know his he was he had to fight his father who of course rose from the dead uh and who was angry that he had a straw death so you have a lot of these old viking terms that he would work in there you had this clash of paganism and encroaching christianity uh, oaths and oath making um, you had some historical elements, you know, King Harold Fairhair, who was the first king of Norway and unified the country is, is in there. Um, but they then you had to, uh, Alfred, I think the great, I think also. Yep. There as well. yeah. He's in there as well. Uh, but on top of that, of course, you have these fantastic elements. That's really what sword and sorcery is about. You have these, it's a little more grounded. It's gritty, historical. You layer on some horror, some magic. And you've you've got a good sword and sorcery tale, and and Paul Anderson's a wonderful storyteller. Um, I know when I die, when I die, I want to have a ship burned around me and and attended <laughs> preparing Greyvale. If I could have that done, that would be great. I've told, I've, and I've if told you my don't, wife. then you will rise up from the dead and wreak havoc until somebody does that for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Until someone comes back and, and shatters my spine, I guess, in a, in a hand-to-hand combat. <laughs> well, it won't be me, so. <laughs> no, but I also, one thing I really liked about this story, though, is of all the stories, this one seemed to have the most heart. You know, like there's yeah. also, in addition to all these other clashes you were talking about, there's also kind of this like clash of generations happening here, too. Mm-hmm. You know, his his father was like a true Viking and Hawk is um, really, um, he's kind of an anti-Viking. Like he sees the Viking raids as really kind of preying on the weak and the defenseless. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really have any interest in going around and raping and robbing the defenseless. He'd yeah. rather make his, um, his gold more valiantly. Um, and so we have kind of that inherent difference between the son and the father. Uh, but then also it's the, um, it's the father who because he dies this like weakling's death, uh, will not rest until he is defeated properly. Uh, so also you have kind of this like interesting, like the son and the father 
kind of strangely kind of make amends and, and, and in a weird way, kind of metaphorically, like find the bridge between their difference um, in the end of the story. So I don't I, right. I thought it was also really kind of interesting on an emotional level as well. All right. You're and, right. and specifically, Geralt is cited as a kindly father who is trying to make sure that all his, you know, before he becomes bitter and old and trying to find ways for all his children to be, you know, like good Vikings. And, you know, he, he gets he gets Hawk onto a ship as a young man so that he can, you know, earn his spurs, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. You, you, you have some of the historical aspects of the old Viking ways that were kind of going out. And that's the influence of Christianity. It says he, he went out on a mission and... um was sort of converted to Christianity or at least was ex- not converted, but exposed to it. And it changed his perspective, you know, from the old pagan ways and the, and sort of the, as you mentioned, Jeff, the, the, the pillage and plunder ways of the Vikings and, and really caused him to rethink that whole lifestyle. So yeah, right, it's, right. it's a great point And that's definitely in there. It gives it a little more depth than you'd expect from your, from your, I hate to say your average sword and sorcery story, right, but you're right. But really it's, it's, it's more than just uh plain adventure in here. Right. There's a little something. I more found going. that actually, uh, you know, this was very humanistic, but there was a couple of other stories I found were surprisingly humanistic in this collection. I think Largaret's, uh, Largaret's, uh, was Bane. Bane. Yeah. And, and, um, the straggler from Atlantis both had elements of, of sort of good naturedness, which you don't necessarily associate with, um, you know, sword and swords, especially after coming off of the first story, Next Summer Cat, which is incredibly nihilistic in, in many ways. Right. Yeah. Lagaros Bane's worth pausing on for a moment. That, you know, it's it's this odd, quiet little story about a fishing village uh, leader who's, his, his bane is actually his pride, right? He's he's angered a god. Um, it places a curse on his kin, which is his daughter, Ariel. Uh, but there's, there's another layer there. He's been sort of babying, ignoring, and not letting his daughter grow. Um, there's a line in there about um, man's work, and he considers her unworthy of that. Then he goes to another female character, a witch. Uh, she actually draws him away, and um, and that that allows the daughter to conf- to confront her demons and his demons. I mean, like literal demons, but right. but, but but metaphoric and literal. Right. Um, so a lot of strong female empowerment there, and again, not what you consider typical sword and sorcery, but mm-hmm. it, it it is about strength. It's about overcoming. Uh, sorcery and overcoming these this demon through through might um mm-hmm. but it, a quiet a quiet little story that that sits a, maybe a little out of place here but is a wonderful little little mm-hmm. tale i, I kind of joked in the uh our reading group that it was uh as if o henry had written a sword and sorcery story <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, Hoy brought up the straggler from Atlantis. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting in that story was this whole idea of how something gets to become a god. And mm-hmm. we're talking about this, like, this, like, gelatinous cube from space uh, fifth. Fifth. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and how they haven't sacrificed any humans to it because then it would become a god. But then also in the end of the story, when he defeats the, uh, when he defeats fifth and the giants, like they want to like celebrate fifth and like, you know, make them make him their chief. And he's like, no, I'm not interested in that. And he specifically says, I don't feel ambitions to be bowed to be bowed to bowing to someone grows into stranger notions about holiness and supreme powers. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's such interesting commentary on this whole like idea that power corrupts. Absolutely. You know, rejection of authority. That's something that you see throughout sword and sorcery is when people have the opportunity, a hero has the opportunity to ascend to the throne will frequently reject it. They're 
kind of the outsider hero. Yeah. Um, I mean, he literally walks off with calling his sword his preferred companion and mm-hmm. uh, agreed, like the danger of bowing to another. Um, right. So that might literally be the thing that destroys Hernando de Guzman in Next Summer Cat, <laughs> right? That he does become that conquistador. I mean, he is that conquistador. Yeah. And, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's more Offit's thing than, than – because uh, that's the, how Offit ended the story from the Howard fragment. Right. But, and, Hoy, you mentioned in the Patron Book Club that you had read just the Howard fragment in addition yep. Yep. to read having read, read this kind of completed piece. And I'm curious – because uh, in the end of the story, you know, we d- we we see Hernando de Guzman become a really dark character who's like basically like raping and beating his wife mm-hmm. and forcing her to wear a, a slave shift underneath her queenly robes as a way of reminding her her place. And is any of that mentioned or alluded to in the Robert E. Howard? Well, fragment? what happens is that he's writing the story and they're in the dungeon and, you know, the running through the darkness. And I think he had actually killed, um, he has gotten into the sword duel with Nex Samarket. And then it literally just like a one paragraph summation of the rest of the story, which I can see where Offit spun it out of. But he goes, um, he sought Nezahualka and claimed his part of the kingship. She resisted, but he overpowered her. And then he doesn't say anything about it. So you could see how he could spin that out as, yes, of course he took her. and But he didn't actually literally say that she was raped and kept as a slave by Hernando de Guzman. Okay, um, interesting. And but then next time a cat returns from the dead and, and destroys the whole city as Offit did in the in the you know his completion of the story. And that um, was great. I, that yeah. was a, that was a great ending to that you story. Know. Um, yeah. You know, certainly the, the nihilism was already present in the part that that Howard wrote, and and as Offit says, we don't know if this is you know scholarly factual, but the impression that he gives was this was the last or one of the last pieces that Howard was working on before you know he, he you know took his own life. And so certainly the frame of mind it was in, if that w- if that's what we believe, is certainly well reflected in this story because it is so dark. Yeah, very dark. So, yeah. So this is probably a good time to start transitioning over to more of the gaming side of the conversation. And Brian, um, I'm curious as you were reading through this, if there was anything that felt super like old school D&D that felt like, oh, I bet Gary got this from, from this collection as you were going through. Um. Yeah, there was definitely some elements, gaming elements here. I, I think uh, the smile of Oesia, I, I believe the sorceress is described as a ninth level witch. Did you guys see that? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that cracked me up so much. Yeah. But but it's also they, uh, it's also kind of poo-pooed. Is she, so she's she's kind of weak. She's only a ninth level uh, witch. I'm like, geez, what, yeah. what, what, what the heck campaign's going on here? Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Are we dealing with a 36 level system here or? <laughs> yeah yeah and there were lots of things like i also there was the um the moment where we had the rope trick spell uh we had the snake yep. staff that was actually taken its name in the story was the snake staff mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in dama the merchant yeah, in no. dragon's teeth uh he literally does backstab right he's a thief and he also has a handle poisons roll when he dips all the little uh crossbow bolts in and starts using those <laughs> right yeah. and in the ring of set we've got cursed rings yeah. and climbing sheer surfaces yeah absolutely there, there, there was some uh, definitely some multi-class characters going on in this collection okay. but um geez which 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 was the one it was uh gosh was it one where the the guy sort of uh can put on uh, can assume different 
forms uses sort of like in some uh, illusion of oh, Simon uh, and the, it was the ring of set with Simon of Gideon. Yes. He can sort of sort of disguise himself and just sort of he like you're not sure if it's supernatural or if he's just like really good sort of like mime and actor, right? When, yeah. when he moves around. First yeah. he takes over the jailer and then he takes over the guard and like yeah. it's it's it, it's almost kind of like a pod person kind of moving from body <laughs> to body kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, I know. When you read this you, you, and you have a D&D background as we do, you can't help but think like how would you translate this into game mechanics and you're like okay so he's got like four or five levels of fighter because he's a, he's pretty badass with a sword but he must have a couple levels right. of illusionist. He's got a little thief in there, he's able to pick a lock right. and right, uh, right. You know, it's certainly, um, <laughs> yeah, certainly like Vettius is at least an eighth level fighter because he can stand in there with these hill giant zombies, right? Yep. And, and probably the same with, um, with uh, the, the protagonist in uh, Straggler for Atlantis, um, Cardios, yeah, Cardios, right? He's almost uh, like the literal AD and D bard, he had to go through the whole path because he's uh, he can sing and the song has prophecy. He seems to have some sneaky skills and he's quite strong as a fighter, so he, you know, he probably. As you said, he either multi-classed or uh, double-classed in order to become did the whole bard progression. And I like that he had the fist fights with the giants, and the giants like, "Well, you didn't really beat me, you know." <laughs> <laughs> i also loved the character background of that character too because on page 143 he says i lived back in the hills cutting wood and growing grapes and i was young enough to want to better myself so i strapped on my sword and slung on my harp and slung my harp on my shoulder so it's like that's that perfect moment of like that is all you need for a character backstory <laughs> right so, so, Brian, I guess one thing we didn't ask you, uh, many of the people that we have on our show are Dungeon Masters, so I didn't know if, if you were more of a player or a Dungeon Master, and then how that reflects how you look at the game and the fiction. Yeah, early on, I was I was the DM because I was the guy who bought the initial box set, and if you want to have... If you want to get a game going, typically it requires someone who's willing to dungeon master and gather their friends around. No one knows the game rules as well as you do. Right. So I was definitely the early DM, but um, I took a break from D&D. And probably when I went off to college in the 90s, I came back with third edition, as I think a lot of players did around mm-hmm. 2000, 2001. And we had a, a, a guy that um, was fortunate. He had been DMing for a long time and loved to DM. So... I really learned the ropes as a player from roughly 2001 to we, we had about a 10 year campaign running. It was a homebrewed campaign in 3.0 and 3.5. So picked up a lot as a player and really enjoyed that. Got to develop a couple of uh, characters and, and see it from the other side of the screen. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So I've got a couple of quick questions for you then. Sure. Uh, the, and the first one is what monster would you, would you steal from this collection? The last story, the sustenance, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, the sustenance of Hoke, yeah. uh, very Lovecraftian, but just super weird, super gross, um, yeah. multi-tentacled, so it's it's not easy to kill. Like, you can kill one of the, the small stump-like representations. If somebody's listening to this episode and they haven't read this story, can you describe <laughs> what this monster is like to them? Uh, uh, a bloated octopus um with this with the with the flesh of moby dick it's very pale it's venous bulbous uh, tentacled yeah. uh yeah. it, it, it was at the same time it's know. sort of a tree <laughs> what's nice is you don't really get to see the full thing all at once like you're seeing yeah. parts and pieces of it and I, I think that adds to the creepiness and weirdness of the tale mm-hmm. uh, of course ramsey campbell was was very much influenced by uh by lovecraft as so many of these writers were you can clearly see that influence here but 
it works. You know, he's a master of atmosphere. Ramsey Campbell done a lot of great horror material, and right. this stuff is real horror influenced. Uh, right. And I'd only, I you know, this is the first uh, fantasy story of his I'd read. I'd only I'd only read his horror fiction in the past. Okay. And most of the horror fiction was generally uh, contemporary, sort of urban working class England. Yep. And so it was interesting to see this. And I, I know, I guess he wrote some completed some of the uh, Solomon Kane stories later on, but I had no real understanding of his fantasy chops. So it yeah. really, was I interesting have to, to have this in this collection. I have to plug this book. If you guys can see it, it's called uh, far away and never. It was um, published in 1996 by Necronomicon press. It collects all of his Ryer stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also, an, there's also an original story he wrote just for this collection. So worth picking up. The the Ryer stories were scattered across a number of publications, a uh, number of the Sword Against Darkness um, anthologies, of course, but uh, Savage Heroes, one was in there, the one was in Whispers. Cool. This collects this collects them all, and you can you can still buy it pretty cheaply. I think it was eight bucks. So that's great. That's pick, awesome. pick it up. Yeah. So the next question is which villain are you stealing? But the hedge wizard and dragon's teeth. <laughs> oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. Um, Daspies, um, he was like, yeah. <laughs> he had a he was a hedge wizard, but and he was half insane, and he had a monkey on his shoulder. It was like a ventriloquist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a wonderful touch by David Drake. Just like this, so, so memorable. You know, I mean, I, right, I, right. I, right. I need. Drake I need is definitely that. not generally known for his humor, but the monkey really adds a, a nice touch to that story. You know? Yeah. <laughs> The twist ending there when it with with when he buries the actual dragon. I mean, well, I don't want to give it away. The spoiler. I mean, it's a forty oh, year old book. <laughs> yeah, he buries the teeth, and, and you get this glimpse of a dragon coming out of the ground right, at the right. end. It was perfect. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's this is, it hasn't been seen in seventy million years, so it's a, it's a dinosaur, right? It's a, like a spinosaurus. Right? <laughs> yeah. You're right. You're you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, I love I love Syriana. She cracked me up from um from the smile of Oisa. You know, mm-hmm. she's she, she's the one who um, is like slitting throats left and right, and like <laughs> oh, yeah. runs people. off with the mask. And um, she's yeah. our ninth level witch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very well <laughs> she was done. Great. Very three dimensional. Yeah. My last question in this series is: Which character do you either want to play or have be a party member in your in your gaming party? Oh, which God. hero are you stealing? That's a great question. Maybe maybe Cardios. You know the the fact that he's okay. a mighty war, mighty warrior and a bard. Uh, you know he's um, he again re- rejects authority, but he actually caused. I, th- I I believe he caused Atlantis to sink after he kissed the queen, as prophesized. So, <laughs> right. Right. Well, and, can, actually, Brian, can you can you clear this up for me? Because I'm a little confused. So. He meets Theona, the queen of Atlantis, and she's yeah. like, write a song about my beauty. So he like writes a song on the spot about her beauty and includes some prophecy that like, you know, whoever she kisses, like after she kisses, like the whole thing will come crumbling down. Then she's like, all right, kiss me. So did he create that prophecy? Did he know the prophecy and just like wove it into this? What was going on with that? Yeah, I I kind of got the feeling that he knew the prophecy and just kind of spun some lyrics around it. But uh, <laughs> it's possible he was he was he was uh, creating a, a prophecy as, <laughs> as as it went along. I also kind of like I, I I have to give one little jab at this story. I I love the story, and uh, <laughs> so the cardio stories are recently reprinted by this uh, DMR book. So if you want to pick them all up together, I think there was five or six of them scattered across various anthologies. You can now get them all in one collection. Um, 
it was it was interesting though that that monster fifth and remember they're 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 equipping him with the spike club and and telling him that this is the right. the, the weapon he needs to kill it and oh oh by the way there here's a magic sword that that also fell out of the sky <laughs> you know and, and it has this unknown metal that you you you'd think they might have like cued him in that this this also came with it and oh yeah perhaps this is the weapon that is is needed to kill this mysterious and even though we're giant it's the perfect size for you to hold <laughs> yeah no i really yeah, love the giants and the whole that whole giant society is just so much fun in that story oh yeah just, it was cool that they weren't just evil you know they they were they were friendly they were clumsy um yeah. well done <laughs> so brian as a D, as a big D guy and also as a big sword and sorcery fan do you feel like you can do like real proper sword and sorcery with Dungeons and Dragons rules as written? Or do you feel like you really need to tweak a lot to really kind of get that flavor that you're looking for? Yeah, I think you need to make some tweaks. Um, you know, the obvious one being the cleric and the prevalence of healing magic. Um, you know, I, I actually think the yeah. old Dungeons and Dragons game, um, the old rules are pretty conducive to sword and sorcery you know the fact that you gained experience points by finding gold and and returning from the dungeon with gold and there was actual you know you could go up in levels by basically plundering crypts and stealing loot which is pretty sword and sorcery if you think about it but i believe you have to make some changes and modifications to the to, to the rules as written if you really want to get an sns feel and also of course you know it's very human centric sword and sorcery typically uh to have a, a a mixed party of elves and dwarves, um, that that sort of those elements of Tolkien that are um, kind of layered on top, make it a little challenging if you just do the rules as written. But I think with some with a few changes, you can do a credible sword and sorcery game. Um, maybe think, give um, maybe give max hit points or two or three levels of character to start right. with. First level characters are a little too fragile for right. for a sword and sorcery as well. Right. I think it's, yeah, you make an interesting point because I think in a lot of the sort of more modern D&D games, it's almost like the human character is the is the outlier. You might have a party literally of everything and you have to have like, oh, we'll have one human cleric just so we have someone who can cast the healing spells. Or something like that. Right. <laughs> um, I think that the that uh, DCC does a good job of getting closer to sword and sorcery because it, it um, you know, has sort of modern... Um, some modern design elements, but it is more similar to B and BX. You know, you have a fighter class, you know, uh, a thief class, um, but they have some interesting mechanics that allow you to go sort of beyond what your level might capable of doing with this D die or the luck die, right, Jeff, for the thief to give it a little bit more flavor. Um, Absolutely. But I agree that yeah. that's, the, you know, that's the level of modification I think you need to make um, yep. in order to, to move forward. And one thing I'm really curious about exploring of exploring more of is in our patron book club, Ray Otis mentioned a game called Swords Without Master. And apparently in that game, it's it's a sword and sorcery game and uh, uh, apparently a kind of central component to character design is the player finds a picture of the, the character they want to play hmm. and your character has whatever the character in that picture has. Uh, so now I'm, I'm really curious, like this sounds like a, a really kind of cool way to build a character. I'm That's intrigued by this. Ray Otis, any relation to Errol Otis? Ray yeah. Otis is awesome. And yeah. um, I recommend him as a person and an artist, yeah. uh, right. but no, no, his, 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 his connection. I, I, I might be mistaken, but I, if I recall that, that, that is his chosen fake last name for rpgs 
as like an homage to his nom de his nom de RPG. Okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> it is his version of in the tradition of Robert E. Howard. There you go. That is a great mechanic though, because think about how much we know about Conan or any of these characters, or let's say Kane, just from the Frazetta cover. Like, like yeah. that's how I know, or the the one of my favorite pieces of art is the um Swords and Ice Magic cover. Uh, the Michael Whalen cover, and I think that's to me like the the best depiction of Fafford and the Mouser that I've seen. Uh, other than Mouser might be tiny bit short, but the the art is amazing. And that, it, more than anything, I mean, that was the golden age of of uh, you know paperback cover art too. This it lines up with the the golden age of sword and sorcery. So, absolutely. Yeah. Is there any other sort of elements in here that we haven't touched upon that you really think sort of encapsulate swords and sorcery uh, within this collection or any just oddball elements within the, any of these stories that you think would be good for uh, our listeners to know about? Well, one thing I'd like to throw out there is that um, in our uh, Robert E. Howard story, there's one creature that's described as being a man pig donkey, which just kind of reminded me of man bear pig. Uh, <laughs> so I've got the man bear pig action in the first story. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you listening member pig is a thing from south park yeah you also had those monsters with the um the hairy bodies and the hands of a woman like i, I, I don't yeah, know that yeah, right. That. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, i've encountered a few of those in my life <laughs> <laughs> also one thing that cracks me up is um i forget which story it's in um oh it's it's in the smile of oesia um, it describes one of the guys as being naked to the waist. And I feel like I, I encounter that description a lot in Sword and Sorcery. And one of the things that cracks me up is whenever, whenever I encounter naked to the waist, I like to imagine that they're only wearing a T-shirt. Why <laughs> <laughs> run around with their junk out? Yeah, right. Which direction? It doesn't say right. which direction from the waist they're naked. Right. That's well, right. <laughs> specifically in Dragon's Tooth, when uh, Vedius is fighting the giant, he, he tries to grab the giant's junk, and then he gets smashed down by the... <laughs> you know, That's the, right. Uh, Oh, yeah. And we somehow didn't even mention um, anything about Pride of the Fleet in this podcast so far either, uh, where we've got our main character who's running around with her her uniform that she's designed herself, which specifically has her her boobs just hanging out of it. Yeah, that was interesting. You know, the 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 author of that, Bruce Jones, he apparently, you know, the introduction, he he did some work uh, writing and art for for Red Sonia. So I almost wonder mm-hmm. if he was poking some fun at the chainmail bikini stereotype that's so prevalent in sword and sorcery. I don't know. Maybe he was fed up with having to write Red Sonia. Um, again, show <laughs> that, show that self-awareness of, of, of sword and sorcery at the time. But yeah, an odd story. Mm-hmm. I mean, sword and planet. But I mean, sword and planet is basically sword and sorcery with, with laser guns. And it's yeah, it, totally. it's it's really owes a lot more in common with sword right. and sorcery, heroic fantasy than than science fiction. Right. It's It's. I yeah, it's odd. We were some discussing that you know whether we found it like off putting because of the ending basically being fairly yes, rapey, you know it um, was a kind of, kind of a lousy ending to a to a, a up to that point fa- fairly entertaining story, but yeah, right, right. Um, but again, was that some kind of commentary on like you know that whole trope of like the um, you know the Red Sonia character? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that kind of, stuff. or was it just like, oh, I just went off the rails, you know, um, that's what, that was an odd one. Again, uh, I mean, there are, the other stories are darker. I mean, you know, tell the sustenance of Hoke and the next Hammerket are definitely darker 
by any yeah. stretch of the imagination in that story. But that ending is a little bit distasteful. So that's just well. And somebody story. mentioned that uh, Bruce Jones was primarily an artist, and uh, so I went ahead and Googled Bruce Jones's art. And looking at Bruce Jones's art, it's like, oh yeah, I completely understand the story because like everything about his art is also everything that we saw in the story. Um, <laughs> but Brian, our time is starting to run out. So I'm curious, yep. is there anything about this collection that you wanted to chat about that we didn't get a chance to address? No, I think, I think we hit on basically everything that I wanted to talk about. Um, you know, one of the things that I'll, I'll just, if I can plug my book one more time, uh, Flame and Crimson, that, you know, uh, we, it's interesting at the end of uh, Sustenance of Hoke, you start to see this, this was a very dark story, horror infused story. Um, there's a great line in there that Campbell uses. Um, gosh, the, the, the death of Glode, his, 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 you know, his companion dies with an arrow in his gut. It's very unheroic. Uh, and I, I think this story starts to prefigure sort of the next step for sword and sorcery, which would be grimdark. You know, you have the mm -hmm. stories of, of Glenn Cook, the Black Company, uh, George R. R. Martin, of course, with Song of Ice mm -hmm. and Fire. You really start to see a little bit at the end of at the end of this collection. Uh, interesting that it was done by Campbell, who again was principally a horror author. But I think he was yeah. sort of an important trend, transitional figure in sword and sorcery mm -hmm. as we move into um, the next iteration of the genre. So mm -hmm. recommend that one. And again, seeking out that Ram Ramsey Campbell collection. He's an, he's an author that adds an important element to, to sword and sorcery. I think doesn't get his just due when we, when we talk about, right. right. I guess um, cause he's so, so well known as a horror writer. That's absolutely. It's almost like an, an appendix to his career. If you're not aware of it. Yeah. Um, no, but just a great insight. Thank you. Really enjoyed the collection and, and think it's, um, you could, you could do much worse if you're starting out. And it is readily available as an ebook right now, so so do do seek it out. Un unfortunately, the other four volumes aren't aren't on ebooks yet, but the first volume is available as an ebook, so it's that's it's out there and about. And also, Brian, I would love to say, you know, you sent a copy of your book to both Hoy and I, and I just want to say thank you. This book is fantastic. I also yeah. want to plug your book. It is just a fantastic resource for anybody who's interested in learning more about the history of sword and sorcery. It's it's a really cool it's a really cool right. book. So. Yeah, thank, thank you. you very much. Yeah, Paul Piero uh, Press was published earlier this year. the uh, The cover artist is a gentleman named Tom Barber, who did a lot of work actually for Zebra in the seventies and eighties. Um, cool. Some of, those, some of those Robert E. Howard titles have uh, cover art by Tom Barber, and I was absolutely thrilled and tickled pink that he was the author for my cover. I, I got to meet him. I spent a couple of days with with Tom. Um, he lives in New Hampshire, a little bit north of me, about an hour, hour and a half, and went up and visited him and saw his art studio and really talented artist uh, who took a break from from um, from painting in the in the 90s, but is now back doing some work again. And this was his really his return to sword and sorcery. Really cool, cool cover. Check it out. Yeah. Galton. Yep. <laughs> always holding Galton's it up. Thorns, always good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So yes, yeah, so stuff. Paul Piero Press is where the best place to find it. Is it available on the regular places like Amazon and yeah, other yeah. places like that as well? Right. Yep, you can so, get it. Find it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Right. Yep. I, again, I do really encourage people to seek this book out because it is uh, both, uh, you know, again, well supported, well cited, but also eminently readable as, as far as I've gotten through it. So um, thank you so much, Brian, for sending yeah. this to us. And do you have any projects you're working on now that you think people should know about? Um, nothing, nothing big. I've, I've been doing a little more short writing again, uh, essays, and I write for a, a website called uh, DMR Books, which is a publisher. Um, I have my own blog, The Silver Key. 
But um, I'm kind of ruminating on my next project. I don't want this book to be my last. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, it's been fairly well received, and I'm and I'm looking forward to the next project. I've 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 got some ideas cooking, but not I want to commit to sure. the archives of Appendix N. So I'll keep you posted. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and do you have a uh, social media presence? I have, of course, a Facebook page. It's it's really a personal page, but you can look me up there, Brian Murphy. Right. Um, there you go. I also have a blog. You know, people who want to wrestle you when you come back as an undead <laughs> drow. <laughs> welcome, welcome to do so. I am wearing a Conan the Barbarian t-shirt, so come at me, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, right. the silverkey.blogspot.com is probably the best place to find my the, the work that I, I'm known for, my professional work. And I talk about the book there and what essays I'm writing and what bits of ephemera I'm working on. That's the best spot. Perfect. And Hoy, what's the best spot for folks to find us? All right. So uh, if you want to give us some feedback, just drop us an, uh, an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. We're on Facebook and MeWe as well. And uh, Jeff, uh, how about our Patreon? Yes, you can head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club. If you would like to show us your support, we would really appreciate that. Uh, we'd like to give a shout out to a few of our patrons, uh, Robbie Fioto, Noah Green, Christopher Murray, Demo Saklas, David Moreau, Andrew Satan, Adrian Romero, and Brian Rumble. Thank you so much for your support. And in addition to that, we had a patron book club before this episode, and we had a lot of great folks there. Uh, We had uh, Jeremy Harper, Eric Hicks, Adam Stiers, and Ray Otis. They were all there chatting with Hoy and I about the show beforehand. So that was a lot of fun. Um, Our next two episodes, episode 75, is going to be on Roger Zelazny's Sign of the Unicorn. And episode 76 will be on Michael Moorcock's The Vanishing Tower. Brian, thanks again so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Good luck. Yeah, this has been fun. You in the stack. Read on. The library is closed.